are, are diverting stormwater from getting into bad places, um, you know, I think. Recording in progress. I'd like to call the regular meeting of the Shoreline City Council for Monday, October 16th, 2023 to order. Will you please join me in the flag salute? Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, Thank you. Will the clerk please call the roll? Mayor Scully. Present. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Here. Councilmember Ramsdale. Present. Councilmember Mork. Present. Councilmember McConnell. Present. Councilmember Poby. Present. Councilmember Roberts. Here. All are present. Uh, next up is approval of the agenda. Are there any changes to the proposed agenda? Seeing none, the agenda is adopted unanimously. Next up is the report of the city manager, Mr. Ellington. Yes. Join us for family-friendly fun at our annual Hamlin Halloween Haunt on Friday from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. at Hamlin Park. Listen to spooky songs and stories around a campfire, ride the hay wagon, play Halloween games, and more free spooky fun. Dress for the weather and bring a flashlight. Learn more at shorelinewa.gov forward slash haunt. After Shorewood and Shorecrest battle it out, in the Rotary Cup football game, join the team program for a party. All high school students are welcome at Spartan Recreation Center for food, music, games, and dancing. The teen center at Richmond Highlands Rec will be closed for the night, so join us at Spartan for the party. Learn more at shorelinewa.gov forward slash calendar. Please join Salome MC at the Art Cottage at Richmond Beach Saltwater Park for the final presentation of her experimental documentary. See her work and community contributions to this finished piece. All ages are welcome. Learn more about the project at shorelinewa.gov forward slash calendar. Join your walk leader, Beth, with the Shoreline Walk Exploring Fall Colors in Northcrest and Hamlin Park. There's no need to sign up. Just meet at the Ridgecrest Elementary parking lot on Northeast 165th Street. The walk is 2.5 miles and is rated as moderate for steep hills. Learn more and see other upcoming walks at shorelinewa.gov forward slash shoreline walks. And finally, the Planning Commission will hold a public hearing this Thursday on Transportation Concurrency Development Code Amendments. For the full agenda and information on how to participate in the meeting, visit the city's web calendar. And that concludes the city manager's report. Thank you, Mr. Ellington. Next up is council reports. Are there any council reports? Councilmember Mark. Uh, thank you, Mayor. I attended the uh, K4C, the King County Climate, Climate Collaboration, and uh, one of the things discussed that it was a public meeting held by, um, or an elected meeting held by Dal Constantine, talking about different kinds of things that we could do. One area of interest was um, sequestration and uh, the the. Shoreline Historical Museum um, tree uh, area called, I don't remember the exact name, but it was brought up as an example, so I thought that was really cool. And then I also attended the RWQC meeting in which we discussed changes made to better be able to predict rates. Thank you. Any other council reports? Councilmember Popey and I had the honor last night to meet with the ambassador from Sierra Leone who flew in from Washington, D.C. 
Um, and it, I don't know how he chose Shoreline, but he had a town hall meeting here, and it was a fun format. The three of us sat up front, and after speaking a bit, we took questions from the audience. And the majority of them were to the ambassador about what's going on in Sierra Leone, but Councilmember Povey and I also got city questions. And I thought it was a really cool format that we should do our best to, uh, to duplicate if possible. Next up is public comments. This is an opportunity for members of the public to address us on anything on the agenda or of concern to the city. It's three minutes. We ask that you begin with your name and city of residence. I know we have two folks signed up remotely. Do we have anyone in person? One person. All right. Let's do the in-person first, and then we'll do the, or, or are we doing online first? We're going to do in person, in -person first. first. Okay, yeah. So, Mr. Smith? Yeah. Thank you. Hi. You might remember me from a few months ago. I came in having to do with the text green bins that were placed at the corner of 195th and Fremont. Well, guess what? They're back. They dropped them back there last Thursday, and literally the day after there was garbage piled up there. I took a whole bunch of it uh, and put it in my recycling bin, but it was just plain garbage, like. Uh, cans and uh, oil, uh, oil receptacles, things like that. Uh, the day that they came and took those things away, I just happened to go up to the uh, text screen office in Muckleteo and talk to a fella. And I've been in contact with uh, Susan Kelly Morris and Robert Kreuzer about this whole thing too. Well, my major concern is that stretch of Fremont turning into like Soto in downtown Seattle with uh, RVs. I know there's an RV that keeps moving around from place to place. Uh, Robert said that there's two problems in Shoreland. He's both of them. But anyway, uh, that thing keeps moving back and forth. And uh, then for a while there were two RVs. Now they're gone, but they just move around. So this particular corner uh, has already been a problem just after literally one day. And there's no reason for these things to be here because people just drive along Fremont like they would be driving along Aurora, see these things just drop their load and go on, just a total dump and run. So uh, uh, like I said, Susan and Robert have been made aware of this and hopefully we can get rid of this problem permanently because that area has just been so nice and quiet and we don't want problems with theft and garbage and a lot of times people will even dump food there, like like boxes of food that should go to the food bank, and then next thing you know, you got raccoons and crows and rats and all kinds of stuff scurrying around. So it's just nasty, and it does it's not necessary. These these tech screen bins are all over the place anyway. There's one down near the Thriftway. Uh, I think there was there's one down the, down on Richmond Beach Road across the Little Market. So what's the point? So if we can just keep these things at a minimum, uh, there must be some financial. Uh, reason for them doing it. I, I actually took a tour of their facilities in Muckleteo and they uh, are recycling a lot of this stuff and a lot of it's going to South America. So they're, they're, there's a financial incentive to do this. But I can't imagine that they were, they contacted, the property is owned by uh, Seattle Public Utilities, the Water Department. And I can't imagine that they actually got in contact with the Water Department and got permission to drop these things. They just did it. So hopefully we can take care of this once and for all and not have to see you here again. You'll never have to see me again either. So, okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Smith. All right. That's it for me. I've got to go. Bye-bye. All right. Let's do the remote. Derek Blackwell. Hello. This is Derek Blackwell. I live nearby the Madeira Project on Linden Avenue, continuing with the neighborhood concern for the long-term traffic hazards. Uh, these points are from the email I sent on September 8th, the city staff and council. Several neighbors added detailed comments 
So far, we've only received one reply from Kate Lee. This concerns the deviation for driveway access, which states, the granting of such deviation will not be material detriment, materially detrimental to the public welfare or injurious or create adverse impacts to the property or other properties and improvements in the vicinity and in the zone in which the subject property is situated. My reply, this deviation as stated would be more injurious and more likely to create adverse impacts if the southern driveway fails to connect to the parking garage for the following reasons. One, since two levels of the garage would merge at the northern driveway, there would be a greater danger of collisions if this were the only access point for 451 resident vehicles. For safety, there needs to be alternate access to the garage. What if a vehicle stalls or a garage door malfunctions? This problem is exacerbated by point number two, the extreme size and length of the proposed building, almost 500 feet long, 400 units, and one of the largest residential buildings in Shoreline. This is one of the unique circumstances that has not been mentioned here in the deviation. Three, the poorly conceived setting of the proposed building hemmed in on three sides with access only from Linden Avenue North. Four, traffic flow patterns at PM peak hours. The majority of residents returning from I-5 would drive west on North 175th Street, crossing Aurora Avenue, and turn north on Linden Avenue. The same is true for residents of the neighboring Brea proposal, approximately 600 feet north, with no closer and easier access to I-5. Five, the narrow width of Linden Avenue, approximately 25 feet. Six, the lack of speed bumps on Linden Avenue. See the attached letter from Randy Witt, Director of Public Works, explaining why this stretch of Linden Avenue cannot have speed bumps and further stating, quote, Linden Avenue North is an arterial and serves as an important connection for emergency vehicles response, trucks, buses, and relatively high volumes of traffic. Seven, the expected high socioeconomic status of the intended residents of the proposed building. The SEPA checklist for the proposal states the building would include, quote, Amenity spaces for fitness and work from home space, a game room, a pet spa, a private courtyard, multiple lounges with rooftop decks and up to 400 residential units. So cars are encouraged here. Few residents would use the nearby buses. The light rail is a mile and a half away from the building. The traffic impact analysis does not take this into account. Therefore, estimates are likely to be low. The stated expectations for the neighboring Brea proposal are very similar. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you, Mr. Blackwell. Kathleen Russell is next. Kathleen Russell, resident of Shoreline. Regarding the uh, transportation impact fee program and in reading the additional information posted to the council agenda page, I have questions of my own. Supplemental comment. As I understand, one of the developers mentioned twice as rescinding on two shoreline projects is having significant internal problems and is facing multiple construction lawsuits in other states. The TIF program became effective in shoreline in 2015. And even though there were lengthy times of concern about lack of building in shoreline on part of the council and city management, Numerous multiplex apartments and townhouses are now proceeding. Question, is there a list of the developments that have been permitted even recently and are proceeding and the number of housing inventory these developments will provide? How can we get this information? Question, I think Merlon Geyer 
a huge West Coast entity proposed to build 1,500 apartment units over 20 years in Shoreline Place. According to the development agreement, is Merlon Geyer or subsequent required to build these apartment units? How to get this answer? In 2024, the Washington legislature will again be discussing transit-oriented development, and it is likely additional options for builders will be available with state mandates supporting TOD. There will definitely be transportation issues and transit maintenance issues in the future due to the remarkable increase in Shoreline's population. And it still seems that there is a reason for the TIF program that is in place. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Russell. No one else has signed up. All right, is there anyone in the audience who would like to address us during public comments? All right, seeing none, I'll go ahead and close the public comment period. Next up is the consent calendar. Deputy Mayor. I move approval of the consent calendar. Second. Will the clerk please call the vote? Mayor Scully. Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale. Aye. Councilmember McConnell. Aye. Councilmember Poby. Aye. Councilmember Mork. Aye. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Aye. Councilmember Roberts. Aye. All right, the consent calendar passes unanimously. Next up is study item 8A, which is a discussion of the draft 2023 Urban Forest Strategic Plan. And I believe we have Mr. Borer, uh, Mr. Peterson, and Mr. Hickenbottom in person. Or just Mr. Borer. <laughs> <laughs> I give up. How do I share screen? I'm sorry. Oh. Thank you. So, Mayor, uh, Deputy Mayor, Council Members, thank you for having us. Um, and with me, Mr. Peterson, Mr. Hickenbottom, and also Ms. Walker is online if we have any questions. Uh, she was a consultant for this project. So uh, the 2014 Urban Forest Strategic Plan, trying to move forward. Um, uh, as it, it, it's, it's old, it needs to be updated. So we have a, it's a high level uh, internal document and we use that to set overarching goals, objectives, and strategies for the urban forest. Um, it's focused on public right-of-way trees, uh, parkland trees and open space trees, not private. Uh, make sure that's clear. And it's a high-level guide to developing the policies, protocols, and work plans. Uh, the 2023 update measures the progress we got in the 2014 and then updates goals and objectives and strategies to reflect current conditions and uh, challenges. So uh, public feedback. So we did an extensive public process in as part of doing this. Uh, we went through uh, um, a lot of steps, uh, set public service announcements out to a broad spectrum of citizens and interested groups with links to various plans and opportunities for feedback. Uh, we had an online forum which ran from March 10th through April 28th um, and uh, we had 119 responses. 
Uh, we held an open house here on April 13th, and there's 26 participants there. And finally, we held a, a study session with park board members to really get some solicited, focused feedback. Um, guiding principles. So this city has several established documents and plans that have guided its programs and policies and resonate well with Urban Forest Strategic Plan. These slides list several existing documents and plans that work in complement with the Urban Forest Strategic Plan. Uh, just want to quote something from Shoreline Vision 2029. People are first drawn here to the city's beautiful natural settings and abundant trees. Um, so the key goals of, of the, the plan, um, this is the heart of the document. Um, so the tree canopy, uh, we want to maintain an optimal and equitable degree of tree cover, utilizing community needs mapping and tree equity scores, ensuring that the public, that the urban tree canopy can coverage throughout shoreline. Um, we had a recent tree canopy assessment. I'll talk about that a little more later. 30, it shows 37% tree canopy coverage. Um, this percentage is, affords a significant eco benefits and maintains a high percentage of city growth in, uh, with this baseline goal. Increasing is the desirable aim. We need to establish tree populations suitable for the urban setting and adapted to the regional environmental and climate changes. Uh, things are drier, hotter in the summer. Uh, we need to consider that. We need to review and add to this street tree list. Uh, there's um, more trees, uh, larger size, and more adaptable to current conditions. And we need to develop a comprehensive inventory of public street trees, resource, um, resource to direct management, um, in progress, we can, we can uh, in progress, this is happening right now, we can extend and include condition assessments and planting um, plans moving forward. Um, management plan, we need to develop and implement a comprehensive urban forest management plan for public property. Uh, I'm talking more street trees than anything. We, this, the 20-year street plan is for open spaces and parks. Uh, we need to look at writing one for street trees sort of a street tree manual. Uh, funding, develop and maintain adequate funding to implement the city's plans. Uh, we applied for and received a million dollar grant. Um, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, staffing, uh, we need to employ and train adequate staff to implement and this robust city force program. Uh, Idea, we can send staff to training opportunities at Municipal Forest Institute uh, and expand devoted staff that are kind of devoted straight towards uh, urban forestry. Um, we need to encourage in, in, in community stewardship at the neighborhood level. Um, we need to help residents understand and cooperate with urban forest management. Uh, we can expand the Green Shoreline Partnership and expand Community Trees Program, which is the free trees we're piloting, giving away free trees to plant to citizens. and. In the, on their private property as well as in the right-of-way. Um, you know, I am not advancing this, am I? Sorry. Goals and strategies. Um, 
vegetative resources. So plan to face key goals and strategies to accomplish the aforementioned priorities and objectives. It divides them into three categories, vegetative resources, um, that's canopy cover, identifying planning spaces and public land to enhance tree cover, species suitability, um, update the right of way tree list, we talked about that, and tree inventory, we need to complete that and uh, add it to our tree inventory system and GIS layers. Um, managing our resources, uh, we need to manage plans and policies, uh, develop a tree risk management plan for street trees and parks. Funding, apply for seed funding, such as the grant and a community forest grant to expand the city's urban forestry program. Staffing, I need to continue to support full-time city staff uh, positions. Need staffing resources to implement city forest management program for public trees and forest spaces. And community engagement, uh, public agency coordination, we really need to revive the city's tree team. We had a tree, tree team prior to COVID that kind of went to the wayside. I think we need to revise that. Uh, that will help guide principles and talking and communication among the different departments. Uh, neighborhood engagement, the green shoreline stewardship, volunteer training, invasive removal, and other planning events, and uh, increase community awareness, uh, develop and grow, and provide trees and education for proper tree care to residents throughout the city. So the 2023 urban canopy assessment, uh, we've, we've had this on the website. I just want to draw attention to, we actually had a, a growth in the canopy assessment, although however modest it was, we did grow the tree canopy. It went from 37 percent to 37 or to 37.1 so we got about 10 acres more kind of nice um, especially in light of the uh, light rail and all that all that's been happening there uh, here's a snapshot of the tree inventory we've inventory 10,000 trees uh, five neighborhoods we're looking at continuing that and expanding it uh, with this additional funding we might be able to enhance that get some more uh, um, assessment, some more vital data, and uh, move it along a lot faster. Uh, we anticipate being done by the end of 2025. So summary and conclusions. Uh, categories, strategies appear in Appendix D. They show the ongoing status, uh, proposed timeline, and, and share a general sense of budget implications. Ideally, um, several of these strategies are worked on concurrently in city programs as it grows and evolves. Uh, we need continuous improvement uh, using data for mapping and inventory and updating. Uh, we need to seek additional funding. Uh, we need to find innovative ways to expand the program. Um, we'll be coming to you pretty shortly to formally accept the million dollar grant um, and look for your direction and we'll provide some ideas on how we want to move forward with that. Uh, we need to increase coordination with other departments and decision-making process and other partnerships, um, forestry advocates and community volunteers. Uh, community support, we need to increase that. It's vital to the success. We can't staff at levels we need to really maintain some of our natural areas and urban forests, so we need to enhance that. Um, 
Moving forward, we need to develop some biennial work plans and focus on specific measurable goals, engaging the community in planting and stewardship. Final steps, so we, uh, we went to the park board and they unanimously uh, recommended this to come forward for adoption um, at the end of September. We're here tonight with the study session and we look to hopefully come back to the first, uh, first meeting in November for formal adoption. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. Uh, I look forward to any direction, comments, questions you may have. Thank you, Mr. Boer. This is a study item, so do we have questions or comments from council? Councilmember Povey. Thank you, Mayor, and thank you for the presentation. In reading the conclusions and recommendations from, from the city's website, which you attach the URL into in the staff report, on ST2 construction boundary, there's a 29% UTC chain 2017 through 2021. Okay. Can you comment on that? That's one part. Secondly, I'm just curious on the recommendation about tree plotter. How do you intend to use that? Tree what, I'm sorry? Tree plotter. That's the third recommendation you have here. So you have one, two, and three. The binaries to plant trees. Yeah, so I think the answer to that would be we are inventorying the tree system within the city and so we're kind of currently going through all the neighborhoods and for us to plant a certain tree of a certain size it's based upon the planter strip width and we're still trying to find those street tree spots where we can plant more trees and using the GIS and the plotter system um, is where we're going to try to find more planting locations Okay. Does that, does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. Okay. Can you come in on the SD2 uh, construction boundary? One. On the sound transit construction yeah. boundary? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Specifically on the 21% UTC. That's, that's a good question. Um, on the boundaries with the rail, the trail, the trail along the rail, we have some of that. And do you know what? Um, I think that was an area we lost, tree canopy. Oh, okay. So we, we gained overall in the rest of the city to offset that loss. Right. I so can't hear you. I'm sorry. Corridor, we lost a lot of trees, obviously. And then we had the offsetting mitigation at Ronald Bog, which helped a lot um, as far as making up for some of that mitigation and loss of trees along the I-5 corridor. It, yes, okay. specifically in that area, we lost 29% of the tree canopy over uh, 21 acres total in SD2. Okay, so that's what I thought. And so you know, looking at the numbers, I guess my um, expected response would be what we are doing strategically to get that. There's no way we're going to get that back as it used to be. But then moving forward, how are we equitably going to look at using, that's why I was excited about the tree plotter. How are we looking at all these things to make sure we get back out? Yeah, so, no. That's exactly it. Okay. We, we, we expect that loss in those areas, and then we hope to gain it in other parts of the city by planting more trees. All right. Okay. Thank you, ma'am. I find this one of the most exciting topics. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have comments. Anyone else want to go before I? Go for before it. I all right. Thank you. Um, so I have been excited about tr urban forestry and tree planting for eight years. I've been frustrated for eight years because my sense was, at least under the old plan, before Mr. Higginbottom joined, um, we did a fair amount of planning. We didn't do a lot of doing. 
And I think this plan is a step in the right direction. I was very pleased to read it. It's also a really well put together plan. I mean, it's fascinating information. It's, it was fun to read. Um, but I am still cautious, and I want to encourage that this become about action and less about study, because I think we've done a great job of studying. I think we know now it's not bleak, but we can do better in some areas. And the number I fixated on is the 23% potential planning area. And I would love to see a metric where, and we don't have to have it, and so we don't need to study it, but a goal that we shift some from that column into the planted column every single year. That every year at the end of it, we say, hey, we're down to 22% PPA, and it's not more impervious, it's more planted area. We had a million dollars from the federal government. I am personally willing to support more city money for this. We have a population where trees are incredibly important, particularly ones on right away and in areas where people live and go. I think you've got a willingness to support your efforts here, and I want to make sure that the focus is on trees in the ground, right, and, and maintaining them in right tree and all that, but that we start doing it. Um, the plotter is cool, but I have been driving around the city just saying, hey, a tree could go there, one could go there. We've got this giant lawn out there between Meridian and Aurora. Like, why isn't that a little forest, right? I mean, we have plenty of areas on land we own. And the other area that I want to encourage you to add into this is the large private landowners and finding ways to get them to change some of those giant impervious services. You get out of your car in August at Costco or Fred Meyer or town and country and your shoes are gonna melt. You get off in January and you need boots because you're gonna be standing in a river because even though they are up to stormwater code, it's a giant impervious area. There are parking lots, which are not bad places to be if they're treed and if there's space set aside for greenery and all that. And I don't know what it would take to get those landowners to do it. They'd lose parking spaces, but maybe, maybe we can get them to dedicate some land for parks in exchange for a stormwater credit or some creative way to get those just blots better. And lastly, I think the street planting program is great, and I hope we're pretty aggressive, sorry, the, the, the right-of-way planting program is great, and I hope we're pretty aggressive about it, because I don't know if that arrived in the mail if I'd do it, but if somebody shows up at my door and says, hey, we've got this great program, it's really easy, I mean, we may need to get to that level. We may need to get to, like, neighborhood, work with neighborhood groups and get a neighborhood tree planting day, and we just show up. Right? And neighborhood councils have organized it and we can just we can just get it done. So in any event, I'm I'm totally excited about this, but you know, I've mentioned this two meetings in a row now, but Mr. Ellington's all about key performance indicators and I've become a believer in that. And I'm hoping that every year we can chat with you folks and you can say, here's what we've accomplished, and that the major accomplishments aren't a great new study, it's this area was reforested. Council member? Yeah. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I appreciate the work that has been produced here and I want to thank the parks, the parks board for reviewing this and I think there's some really good stuff in here. You know, I really hope we can sort of take this and sort of use it and celebrate it and communicate this with our community about the, I think there's I think we need to sort of celebrate some of the stuff that's in here and some of the work that we're doing as a city and some of the challenge, I mean, to some degree, some of the challenges that we have to collectively come together to solve, whether it's um, figuring out ways to plant more trees in, in the currently pervious spots or encouraging people to actually to put a tree in the right of way. But I want, uh, one question I'm, when reading the report is, 
it talks about support for an urban forester. I mean, certainly that is a decision that's a budgetary decision of the council. Sell us on why we need to put this on, in the budget and make it a priority. Thank you, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I think we need to focus on enhancing the program, just like Mayor, Keith, uh, Mayor Scully talked about. Um, you know, we, we're limited at what we're doing. Uh, one of the key things we're going to we'll propose with this, this million dollar grant is an additional position to do exactly that, get trees in the ground, um, head up these programs, um, try to increase the community tree program and get more planted. Um, and so would an urban forester, I mean, help provide the resources within your department Correct. to in attention. Yep, and coordinate it. So it worked along, it would free up Kevin's time to do more of this planning uh, and this, this person could carry that stuff out. The other thing we'd want to do is do some management of street trees, uh, trimming. Um, you know, I just got an email last week or two weeks ago from the sweeper that where it was pruning trees because they're just too low. Things like that that we haven't been able to get to uh, that we need to. So the reason I ask, I mean, yeah. sort of when we put into plans, we were advocating for something. I mean, I think that we'd rather say, okay, we need to do this or not put it in your plan at all. Uh -huh. um, and the, so the, but your, your response though sort of talks about sort of the blending between a urban forester and an arborist. I mean, an arborist generally sort of looks at the individual tree. So how, we had people come to the council talking about preservation of trees on 15th and 155th. How would an urban forester sort of, or would an urban forester sort of help in working with through that project? So, like I stated earlier, I mean, thank you. That's a great question. Um, I think starting that, the the tree team again so there is communication and being a part of that and looking at these things ahead of time getting the word out ahead of time looking for options um, there's certainly possibilities uh, taking a look at that um, you know an arborist or urban forester yeah I mean we need more arborist time to actually maintain our trees and we need forest through time to enhance and grow and improve and refurbish them. So it's kind of a combination of both. I think that would be a fair statement. Okay. Councilman, um, also, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but we had two different arborists that worked on those projects. And so obviously we received two different recommendations on a course of action for how we could preserve trees. Had we had one person in-house, there would have been a consistent application to how we um, determined preservation of the trees and which ones would need to be removed. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Councilman Mark. Uh, Mayor, thank you for that speech. That was wonderful. I so agree with you and you focused, you focused exactly where I was hoping that we would focus is that 23%. And I really like the idea of metrics this is so important to so many of us 
Um, excellent questions were asked by um, Councilmember Roberts, and I'm really interested in the tree board that you're talking about uh, rejuvenating. Could you give us a little bit more details on what you're thinking about for that? So it, I wouldn't call it a tree board. I, what, what named? I'm sorry, I, I didn't write down what you called board. it. The parks board has always served in that role yeah. when Councilmember Robertson was on there. And we first became a Tree City USA. That was a requirement. And um, so we kind of tasked the parks board with giving us a lot of feedback. And they've been really helpful over the years, particularly with our, tree, our street trees selection and a lot of the work we've done in our annual reports that we present to the parks board. So it's kind of a dual role. They're already super busy as volunteers doing 20 different things, but um, the tree takes up a lot, the tree part of it takes up a lot of their time, and we've really appreciated their feedback, but yeah, they serve in that role. So you're not advocating I think your mic is off, Councilmember. No. Sorry. Yeah. You're not advocating doing something different than we're currently doing? As far as um, how the parks board serves is in the tree role. Um, I think they do meet the requirements to keep our Tree City USA status, but that could be a larger discussion. Um, but if you're talking about the internal team within the city, um, that is something we're pulling back together. And typically we'll meet with code enforcement, we'll meet with the planning department, um, we'll meet with departments all throughout the city to discuss all sorts of things involving trees. That, that was what I was trying to get okay. a little bit more feedback on. Yeah, but yeah, piece. we're pulling that team back together. COVID kind of slowed it down and then we've had all this development so it's been a busy time but we are pulling the team back together for the internal coordination perfect and what is the correct designation of that group we're the tree team tree the team tree team. <laughs> tree team i love tree it trees. the tree so. team so important <laughs> I, I mean again all this is is really important work uh, how when you think about natives versus looks like they aren't all natives on your street tree list how, do you think about that as one of your criteria or uh, yes we definitely do there are some natives that that are appropriate for street tree planting but there are also a lot of non-natives that are also very appropriate appropriate and if we want to increase our canopy and plant the best tree sometimes it's it's not a native but, but yeah, like Cascara, there, there's a number of really good street trees that are native that we are including in our, in our plans. Thank you. And then finally about the narrow planting strip um, that you were indicating you're struggling to try to find uh, tree four. Have you made any success or? Uh, yeah, I have been in communication with Public Works to, to pick some trees. Um, there are some varieties that can survive in very narrow amenity strips. So I think we've come we have, I've given them a few options and they're considering them. So I, I think we will be able to. Perfect. Yep. Thank you very much. Other questions or comments? Councilmember Connell. Just got so excited there, Mayor, uh, because I forgot how important trees are uh, in some communities that are desert. And so I wondered how much you're concentrating in those areas because the, a report or two ago, we saw a lot of areas that were heat you know, had a lot of heat, so probably means a lot of impervious surfaces. So that's one question, but the other thing I wanna um, comment, and I think you, you guys know this, the right-of-ways that we have are not very wide. So I know the trees you're trying to put in there, great, because they're not gonna be like the ones that are massive and have to be cut down now on some of our 
right-of-ways um, next to the, the roads. However, it seems like it's a little bit of a dilemma because they're not going to have enough canopy to really give that, I don't know, the, the, the shade that people are probably wanting out of these trees. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping you emphasize more getting them in people's yards if they don't have a lot of trees. I actually got one of those trees, but I think those areas really need to have a lot more publicity and push. And as we all know, when you're planting a tree in spring, it's, if you don't pay attention to it, it's going to die. So I would think this is the better time because it's just going to get soaked and it's going to have chance to have roots. But I think I got my tree maybe a little bit more like springtime, and I've really babysat it. And and you gave us, you know, the great water retention thing. But um, we need to idiot-proof the system because people are not going to pay attention. And when it dies, it's, you know, like trying to save it after it's already on the decline. Um, none of us are arborists enough to, to know when that's going to happen. And with all that money and effort, I'd like to make sure a lot of those trees actually, have, you know, survive to have a real canopy. So the real question was the desert areas of, of our city, how could you really get that word out? Like, we've got trees. Come and sign up and get one. Thank you. So I think that's a great comment, great question. So um, that's that's part of this forestry grant, what we want to focus on and focus on growing that program. Some other things I did mention, the, the schools. I mean, they're deserts. They don't have any trees. So maybe we can establish a partnership with them and help them and start planting a lot of trees. I mean, they still need the athletic fields, but there's plenty of area where we could put trees. Um, we're kind of at the mercy of the amenities, or the, the amenity zones along streets. You know, where we can, where they're wide, would put larger trees and you'll have that kind of overarching canopy that everybody likes. I, I, I know, uh, Mayor Scully, we heard, I heard you last time you wanted larger trees. We're certainly considering that and that's going to change um, the species and we'll consider some non-natives because they do make sense in, in many locations. Um, does that answer that? The other thing I would want to do is increase the the, the, the tree program. So we're, we actually had it this last Saturday and we're having it again this next Saturday, uh, giving them away. We really want to increase advertising on that and, and uh, grow that program. I think that's uh, well stated. Um, yes, we would not want to plant trees in the spring. They'll just cook in the summer. That's why we're doing this in the fall. And uh, they'll get that rain all summer long. Or winter long, sorry. Winter, yeah. yeah, that's what I meant. All right, anything further? No. All right, thank you so much. Really appreciate the presentation, and I think we'll see you back uh, later on October, or is it November? November, first. first. All right, do, is, is this something we should put on consent, council, or do you want to hear it again? Yeah, I think, I think consent. All right, yeah, consent is fine. Sounds yeah, thank good. you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. All right, next up we have a discussion of ordinance number 998, which is amending uh, the Shoreline Municipal Code regarding transportation impact fees. You have Mr. Raker, Ms. Bryland, and Mr. Dom in present, and looks like the rest of the Shoreline staff on call. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's left is coming up. Yeah, yeah, 
Hi, Mayor and Council. Uh, Jeff Raker, Senior Transportation Planner in the Public Works Department. I'm joined by um, a crack team here. Uh, so Kendra Brayland from uh, Farron Pierce, who's the consultant supporting the work on these TIF updates. Um, Nate is here, as well as um, Bethany in the background for any questions related to housing. And then online, I believe Natasha Walters is late up at night because she's on the East Coast attending to some family matters. And Kendra Dodinsky should be uh, joining virtually as well. Um, so happy to be in front of you again to discuss the proposed updates to our transportation impact fee um, program. And tonight, we uh, well, we presented our draft TIF program recommendations to Council in July and September. I've made some adjustments uh, associated with some of those, that discussion. Um, today, we are before you to discuss a more full proposal of the staff recommendations, the ordinance, and revisions to the municipal code. On November 6th, we expect to return to Council for potential action on the ordinance and uh, seeking direction to also include these updated TIF rates in the resolution uh, to update the master fee schedule scheduled for November 20th, um, taking effect in March. And I just wanted to provide you with sort of an overview of the proposed changes um, through ordinance number 998. Um, it's attachment A in your packet. Um, this includes a new TIF rate study uh, that's included in your packet uh, and an associated project list. And a, adopting a new TIF, set of TIF rates based on different land uses, um, updating the exemptions, so updating the language for low-income housing exemptions that we have currently, updating our business exemptions according with discussions we've had in the prior uh, meetings, uh, a new exemption for early learning facilities that aligns with an allowance in the RCW and supports uh, early learning facilities in the city, um, a new section added to for a 15% TIF reduction in our high activity areas to align with the transit rich environment of those areas and therefore the lessened impact from uh, uh, trip demand or trip generation. And then new and amended definitions. So that's what this ordinance includes. Um, it appeared that in prior meetings with council, our early consensus was that um, we had large agreement around switching the TIF calculations to person trips versus vehicle trips to align with multimodal transportation system goals, um, a reduction in the high activity areas to reflect um, our desire to focus growth in those areas, but primarily to reflect the fact that they are uh, areas that have reduced trip uh, generation um, and reduced impact on the transportation system. And then the adjustments to the list of business exemptions were largely agreed upon in support of economic development and climate action goals. Um, areas for classification, clarification, I should say, um, really focus around uh, multifamily and affordable housing, so we've given some attention to that, as well as more details in establishing the TIF rates, the basis for the project list that can be funded, uh, that TIF can fund, that is, and a comparison, the comparisons we had among peer cities. Uh, on the adoption of a, the TIF rate study, um, I just wanted to note that you know, TIF revenue is a very critical funding um, mechanism for the city to support transportation projects we have committed to. It provides local funds um, in uh, support of uh, both our concurrency standard, uh, our ability to meet our concurrency standards and to um, to match up with committed funds uh, in funded projects that we have uh, associated links to 
federal grants. Um, the rates we have assigned through this work are based on total project costs, the eligibility of a project, that means it has to connect to uh, new development, um, and anticipated growth. Um, and the rate study establishes a maximum allowable TIF rate as a point of clarification from last time. The city can choose to only charge a percentage of that overall maximum rate. Um, and it is notable that we utilize traffic impact analyses for larger developments frequently to further assess individual development impacts um, that often result in a lower than TIF published rate. Um, so it uh, is already the practice of the city to bring these rates down for those larger multifamily projects in particular. Um, our recommendation is to maintain the maximum eligible TIF rate that we have in the rate study. It's anticipated to be necessary to sustain current revenue levels and fulfill commitments to the transportation system. Um, the basis for the project list is, um, I do want to clarify from the last meeting, there was an indication as to whether these projects were th within the fiscally constrained list or not. Um, 11 projects on this list of 19 are within the fiscally constrained list. Um, that includes TIF eligible projects, high ranking projects, and those needed to meet our concurrency standards and or financial commitments uh, to funded projects. Uh, eight additional transportation element projects were added to the project list. Um, those are very much needed to fulfill objectives in our transportation element for multimodal uh, transportation um, investment. They were very high ranking in prioritization and by having this larger, broader set of projects, it maintains a flexibility in advancing projects um, that is necessary and can also be leveraged to access grant funding as we've noted in prior. Um, so the broader set of projects adds that flexibility um, and the TIF rate can be adjusted independently if that's of consideration by the council. Um, on the comparison among peer cities, uh, we, there was reference to a, a broader statewide study of cities and counties in a comparison. Um, that, that comparison does not account for the higher cost environment of King County and our region. Um, so TIF rates in our region are expectedly higher. Um, additionally, uh, you know, the, we, it is difficult to compare between a number of these programs because of the way they assess the impact and apply the, um, so the trip generation to particular uses. Um, different cities have different districts, just like we're looking at the HAAs, and there's other types of things that influence those rates uh, amongst different cities. Um, so the refined selection of pure cities that we identified within the Puget Sound region is comparable to shoreline and population size. They have a published TIF rate for a single family dwelling unit, which allows us to have a fair comparison. And those proposed TIF rates are comparable and competitive to peer cities. So on the next slide, we've seen this slide before, but it shows that the current rate of our TIF um, uh, versus what is proposed is not a dramatic shift um, in where it's positioned amongst our peers. So impacts on multifamily housing, the hot topic lately of the night. Um, the proposed multifamily rates have been reduced from the current rate. The single family rate does go up, um, with, and, but all multifamily rates are going down uh, with the exception of senior multifamily housing. And lar largely that these reductions and the rates overall are being guided by changes in the trip generation assessment um, that is done on a, uh, in order to inform 
these uh, these rates uh, as general practice. So it's the Institute of Transportation Engineers Trip Generation Manual, and that has been found to assess different uses with lower trip generation, <coughs> including multifamily. They found that senior housing, however, has increased trip generation. Um, so overall, there's a close to 30% reduction on high-rise multifamily TIF rates citywide. Low-rise multifamily, which is equivalent to middle housing, um, we'll see a 2.7% reduction as it's set at 50% of the single-family rate to align with state guidance regarding middle housing. Sorry. Let me skip ahead to my notes for a moment. Um, then the impacts of a reduction in uh, the high activity areas um, connect to, uh, you know, a, a additional incentive for multifamily housing development in high activity areas. They're estimated to have less impact on the transportation system as more people ride transit, walk, bike, go to destinations and not generating auto trips that have a more significant impact on the system. Um, this 15% reduction in TIF is proposed within those HAAs to reflect that. And then uh, it additionally provides an incentive to help make it more affordable to develop housing in those areas with a lot of the housing development capacity of the city. Um, this is represented by a 40% reduction for high-rise multifamily and a 17% reduction for low-rise multifamily. Um, as an example as to what this might look like on a project level, uh, we've done an assessment of the different uh, codes of land use um, associated with each of these housing types. Um, looking at the current method within uh, the HAA and without, um, and uh, it shows essentially that there is uh, decreases across the board, um, more significantly within each a the HAAs. Um, which boosts multifamily housing and supports um, sort of the overall increase in the supply of housing, which does not have a direct influence on affordability, but does long-term uh, mean that the larger pool of housing stock ages and therefore affordability is uh, increased if you continue to increase the supply. <clears throat> um, on affordable housing exemptions, um, this is a, a challenging one, one which I think as staff we're passionate about being able to advance affordable housing. Uh, the current TIF exemption for units uh, is provided to nonprofit developers at 60% of median family income. Um, staff explored expanding this exemption um, by bringing it to private developers, setting it at 80% MFI or below. And the, the staff determination on this is that it, it, it is not the best mechanism to bring about the shift in affordable housing that we would like through a, a direct housing exemption. Um, the reason being that it's, an unlikely, it's unlikely to be an attractive incentive to private developers as they need to commit to permanent affordability. Um, and the difference between the uncollected rent on what they would get in the market rate versus what they would need to commit to you know, in terms of affordability um, and, and how much the incentive compares to that is it's, it's, a, it's just a significant difference. So it's, it's not something that would attract developer interest. Um, the reduction in the high activity areas does incentivize multifamily housing areas we've covered. And that is an incentive that boosts supply on top of leveraging the MFT program that overlaps um, with it. Administratively, it's also difficult to implement these competing programs because you, you have 
the MST program set at 12 and 20 years of affordability, and then you have the TIF exemption set at permanent affordability. So you need to credit different units for that. So it would be an increase in the number of units that a developer would have to provide at different levels and terms of commitment. So our recommendations overall are to, um, to uh, well, the, the TIF program has been successful in generating revenue to support the transportation system. We want to maintain that. Um, TIF revenue plays a significant role in augmenting our city funds and fulfilling match requirements. Um, and while the rate may be going up, uh, fees are going down on a number of uh, these projects re related to multifamily and, and additionally the business exemptions we're providing. providing. Um, and the f following changes to the TIF program will be uh, best meet our city goals in, in staff's perspective. Uh, so adopting the TIF project list, updating those rates based on the 19 defined projects, uh, not adjusting this project list, implementing 15% reduction in the HAAs um, and sort of um, ensuring that we reflect that trip generation difference in those areas and uh, support our growth objectives and boosting multifamily housing as an incentive uh, in addition to the others. Uh, adopt and modified business exemptions as we've discussed that uh, align with economic development and climate objectives including a sunset date of December 31st, 2025, uh, with the ability to kind of revisit um, that uh, element uh, alongside the other TIF elements. So, um, and we would maintain the current low-income housing exemptions and add an exemption for early learning facilities. Thanks very much. I look forward to your insight. Ne oh, next steps. I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're scheduled for potential council action on November 6th. Um, we'll take direction from tonight's council discussion and incorporate any proposed amendments to the ordinance if needed. Uh, if adopted, this would be uh, included in the budget cycle resolution for the master fee schedule on November 20th. And those new fees would set would take effect in March, uh, March 15th uh, to allow both the program to be adjusted and staff to be brought up to date on how to execute on uh, the assessment of the fees. Thank you. Thank you. Questions or comments from council? Councilmember Ramsdell. Thank you, Mayor. Um, thank you for the pr presentation. Um, got a, a couple of um, questions and observations. Um, one is, uh, observations first, is that, you know, most of the MFTE program hasn't been very successful historically in providing affordable units um, for individuals and also for families. So um, as far as affordability, affordability goes, we, we're, seeing, we're seeing a lot. It's like one and two bedroom um, uh, apartments uh, in yeah, apartment in the, in the complexes that are being built in Shoreline. So um, how will the TIF um, help at all in providing more affordability for um, uh, single individuals um, who are at that maybe at the 80 or 60 percent AMI um, uh, and uh, for families? Because one of the things we're, we're having a lot, you know, we're getting a lot of renters in, in our city and we're not really attracting families to come and stay here and live. So um, that's my first kind of ob observation question. Um, the second one is I asked about this last during the last presentation about um, a, a land trust and if you're increasing the, the TIF rates for single-family homes, um, often uh, land trusts are a combination of single-family residents at market rate and and at um, uh, incentives where they're just you know um, offering sale of just the the home at 30 to 50 percent AMI. So I'm concerned that that increasing the TIF for single-family homes will disincentivize like 
for, for, for instance, like the land, land trust um, programs. Um, so that's a, that's a question I have, because one thing I think we really want to be able to uh, incentivize um, um, development that will attract families to come to Shoreline and, and, and stay here mm -hmm. and start building some equity. Mm -hmm. and, and what I'm seeing is just a lot of apartment buildings that are even at 80%, because I mean, the, the AMI, I mean, if, when you look, I mean, it's because of, of Seattle and Bellevue, the AMI is, skews the AMI um, uh, to where 80% really is market rate in Shoreline. Um, so, I mean, how do we create those opportunities for, um, you know, in, individuals um, who are at, the, let's see, even the 100% AMI, mm -hmm. um, and, um, and for families um, who, who, you know, want to be able to live, live in Shoreline. So that's, that's one thing. So I'm, I'm really skeptical of, of reducing um, the, the TIFs for multifamily because I really don't want to see more incentives for one and two bedroom um, apartments, uh, apartment buildings. I'd like to see something where we can have create options for individuals and families. Um, the other thing I had a question about was, um, uh, you know, increasing uh, the, the you, mentioned, you mentioned the ITE data was gathered and it updated showing that uh, senior housing is having more impact on transportation. Um, I did a lot of outreach work in senior house, housing buildings as a social worker years ago. And um, I would think like some of those reasons why there would be higher transportation impacts would be because of caregivers coming to those um, houses, or ambulances coming because of health sure. health issues. And um, I think one of the things that I've talked about is I really want, was hoping that Shoreline could become like a age-friendly community. Mm -hmm. And if we're increasing um, the, the TIF rates for senior um, um, housing um, uh, buildings, I mean, that's kind of counter to what we're hoping to, to create an age-friendly um, uh, you know, community. Um, the other thing you mentioned a lot is about public, you know, that you're talking about private investors and private developers. What about public, de uh, public developers or nonprofit developers who are wanting to, to, to let's say, build like a senior housing um, apartment building, let's say, mm -hmm. King County Housing wants to build something mm -hmm. um, in Shoreline. Um, this will be somewhat of a disincentive, you know, by increasing those TIF rates. So if you have any feedback on might be like way off base here, but this is kind of my uh, observation. So if you have some data to change my mind, no, please. I, yeah. I appreciate the okay. perspective um, on senior housing. I, I think it's an interesting perspective. I will say that the senior housing rate is already extremely low in our city. It is, I think, 1,300 per unit, and we're proposing that it goes up to 3,700 per unit, and that is still remains the lowest category of multifamily housing, correct? Yeah. Um, so that, that's one point that it, it's, it's a, it is an, a, a, an increase, um, but it's increased from a very low rate to begin with. So that, that's one thing to just point out and maybe acquiesces some of your concern. Um, in terms of family units, I, I'm going to have to defer to others on the housing um, considerations regarding that, but I think an overall point is that transportation impact funds are a funding source for transportation. Um, I think it's important that we provide reductions and exemptions and support our housing needs in this city, but we also need to support the transportation system. And so the overall rationale for having to funds in place is to ensure that we meet our obligations for our transportation system. We are working on how we can do reductions and support our housing initiatives through this program by um, you know, finding those reductions and exemptions that make sense to support our city goals. Um, on the land trust issue, that, that's an interesting one. I, 
I don't know that we've put a tremendous amount of uh, brain power into, and I apologize for that. Um, so that, that's one that I think we could come back to you on and, and link up. Um, are there any additional comments from the galley? <laughs> I, I, like I think that's you the would gallery. We try not to put people in galleys. Oh, galleries. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I would also defer to uh, Bethany if she's on and talk more about it um, in terms of affordable housing. But you mentioned the nonprofits, and they w would be exempt. That that exemption is going to continue um, if if council adopts the recommendations. Um, and again, yeah, I'd kind of defer to the housing experts the way I'm tempted to dive in, but we'll defer. Just a, a quick, few quick items here. Um, in terms of improvements in the rates study and rate schedule compared to what you have on the books today, we have a lot more categories of multifamily residential, so a lot more of those middle housing categories. So it's not just high density or high, high rise, but we also have low rise. We have um, ADUs, duplexes, so we've, we've tried to reflect that we hope to see a variety of housing types in Shoreline, and I, I think the only other thing I would say, that 15% reduction within your high activity areas, that's a really encouraging provision of middle housing in those areas, so hopefully those two items together um, help to make kind of this program more affordable. Um, just one other question. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, but what the, my my concern is like the nature of that affordable housing um, that you that we're talking just one or two bedroom apartments, and we're not talking three bedrooms, which is more family friendly, yeah. or a studio, which would be more um, attractive for um, an individual who's let's say working downtown. You know, so um, it seems like that that piece is missing. You know, in our in our kind of housing. Well, it, it may be on the on the books, but I'm not, I'm just not seeing it um, in the city. So, um, but thank you. Ms. Dedinsky, did you have a comment? I was just gonna chime in with a couple of points on that. One is, um, I think you're well familiar with the missing middle housing bill. So that that's coming into play here soon. And I think probably gets at part of, part of your sentiment there. But the other thing I, I think is worth noting is that the more housing supply there is, regardless of whether it's multifamily or otherwise, allows people to transition transition to uh, different types of housing and free up the, the, the capacity for others. So for example, as people sort of age in place in Shoreline, they might find themselves empty nesters and want to live closer to light rail and closer to commercial amenities and maybe ditch their car. And so that would allow them to stay in Shoreline, but potentially move to a multifamily uh, environment, um, freeing up that that space that in their their um, more suburban, you know, a single family home, or potentially an ADU or something to that that effect. So, I think that the broader the the increased supply in general of housing will help to bring that price down, or at least that's a concept, right? So, um, I think it's it's a little nuanced in that respect, and just more supply of housing in general does help to bring prices down. So, just wanted to note that. All right, thank you, that's all I have. I'd love to make a comment, Bethany Wabrick Dunn. I am in person here. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about the MFTE program. So we do have one bedroom and studio units as part of that program. I don't have the numbers for exactly how many of the units um, are, are that way, and we can be sure to get that back to you. And I was going to make this, I think, the point that Nate made that 
um, most of the time I would expect that the senior housing that would come into the city would be developed by a nonprofit and would be affordable and then would be eligible for the TIF rate reductions that we currently have in place and would have proposed to continue to have in place. All right, thank you. Other questions or comments from council? Councilmember Roberts. Thank you, Mayor. Um, to me, I see two questions here in this discussion and beyond all the good questions from my colleagues that they will ask and have asked. Um, the first question is, uh, I mean, we talked about this a little bit the last time, I mean, is that list the appropriate list? And is there any, and I think where we ended up, and I, even though I think some of us have concerns about the list, is I don't think there's support to remove anything from that list. I mean, because we each have our own projects that we want to see on it and others that we may not. But then the other question is sort of what's the overall impact of the, that list and how, and I think from developers, I mean, it's more, and when we think about sort of attracting the type, achieving our, it's not about developers, it's about achieving our vision as a city. It's about how do we make sure that we have a, enough housing choices to meet the community needs and in an environment that supports all the vibrancy of the city. Um, we have, just have to go back to Vision 2029 and it really st states out what our vision, what we want really is. So it does come down to how do we, how do we get the things, how do we get, how do we get the community we need and how do TIF fees get us to that, to that point of where we are? And I think for me, at the end of the day, I have a couple, I have a couple specific questions here, but in comments, but I think at the end of the day, it's, it's not so much about the list, it is really about what that overall impact is going to be. Uh, currently we have it set, so, our, we collect about 97% or so of our what we could assess. Um, I know we, in the state law says we can't attribute everything to growth, so we're slightly under. But I think when we think about this, I mean, we have that discretion to sort of, it's more of, a, instead of an on-off switch, it's, okay, what's that sliding light of where is that, where, where do we set that rate uh, or that percentage? And I think that's, but that's not part of this discussion from, or not, at least not really, because the rates, are, the actual, that, that scale is set in the budget discussions, correct? And not so much this. This, 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 this effort is just defining the list and defining the exemptions and other sort of general policies about how the TIF is implemented rather than the actual scale Well, I would say as a part of the ordinance, um, you will be adopting a rate. And so the rate study provides kind of that technical background, that nexus between the project list and the, the rate that you charge, and it provides kind of that upper limit. Um, but I think this discussion is to arrive at what you feel comfortable charging. Now, as a council, you guys have the ability to change that on a year-to-year -year basis. If you want to bring it down, you feel like it's at an inappropriate level, um, you could bring it down. Um, but I, I would posit, I, I think at this point, that's a decision in front of council. 
Okay. So, I mean, when we get there, I mean, I'm going to advocate for let's think about that 97% and whether that's real or whatever the exact number, um, but close to that top range. I mean, we, I think we need to think about sort of recognizing the environment we're in, the building environment we're in, recognizing that we, the things we, many of us want in the community are less, are more in terms of pedestrian and bicycle projects, these multimodal projects, and less on building, uh, even though there are a couple of them in there, uh, less on building new lanes. And so I think that's where I'm at. But I do have one specific question. Um, in the rate study, in the rate table, buried in the rate table, are sort of descriptions of what high-rise buildings are and what mid-sized buildings are. And with the rate, the lowest rate going to those, uh, I think it's the ITE code 222, which is the high-rise, which, which is defined in the code or in their code as buildings 10 stories or higher. Is that what is intended? Yes, I, uh, yes, it is reflected. Um, so in general, um, the higher density the product, ITE has found that in general, we would expect lower PM peak hour trip generation, both in terms of vehicle trips um, and then you know, those sorts of uses tend to be in higher density areas, so more kind of multimodal travel. So that's what results in that lower rate per residential unit. Again, per building, there's probably a lot being generated in impact fees, mm -hmm. but that the impact fee rate is charged per residential unit that's provided. But but the, the rate is charged on the height of the, uh, the way the code is it's based on the height of the building. It's not based on number of units. It's not based on anything other than height. Is that correct? I think that the city needs to have some, some ways that a staff member at the counter knows how to associate kind of the rate with the development being proposed. And so um, we've worked as kind of a staff team to kind of identify well, what are the appropriate definitions? How do we crosswalk? Uh, development types that we're seeing in Shoreline with um, uh, ITE codes. And so, again, the, the fee would be charged on a unit basis, um, but I think that's just kind of the distinction, how to associate it. And I see that Kendra Dadinsky has well, come on camera. I, I, I want to get a clearance to that question. The, 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 the calculation is based upon the number of units, not the height of the building. Not, not the policy reason behind it, but just the answer to the question. It, it, how is it calculated? It is calculated based on the number of units. Thank you. Ms. Dodensky? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's the question that was being asked. It's calculated based on the number of units, correct? However, we associate which particular rate is used based on multiple factors. So it, it is height is included. So we it wouldn't simply be just using one IT trip rate for any type of multifamily if there's multiple types of multifamily that could apply. Well, the reason I'm asking is that there's no definition for these things for in this code, either under our existing code or what's being proposed. So you look yep. at so, some of these things are defined, very clearly defined. And but when we look at sort of what high rise is, there's in the chart, it sort of links to an ITE code, but it seems like you're not using the IT definition 
to define what the rate is, if it's based on number of units rather than by height? Oh, we, we absolutely will use the ITE definitions when we're kind of making those associations. And I think we still have plenty of work to do in terms of kind of the user guide for how we update the TIF, if that makes sense. So um, there's, there's going to be a whole sort of booklet that's involved in guiding developers and staff for that matter through how, how this works. Um, the other thing I would just note is, you know, once you're getting into that higher unit count, um, those folks are likely going to end up needing to provide a TIA anyway. And so we're kind of working with them hand in hand. It's a really a case by case basis in working through scoping exercises. So, um, but yeah, I think this is a simplified version of what we're presenting, but as we refine the sort of user tools for both public facing and staff, uh, interactions, there will be kind of more clarification on those definitions. Well, I'm concerned that this isn't in the in the code that we're adopting. I mean, we're we're moving from a three tier thing where it was multifamily in residential to a multi dimensional defi definition of dwelling, and there's no definition to what those what the, these categories are. In, in where you're what's being suggested is, what I'm hearing is that you're going to put this in a policy booklet and not that's not a, and the council's not going to be the adopting that. So Because it's an IT, but you're not using, you're, you're using IT codes, but what I'm hearing, and I'm sorry, Mayor, but you're not actually using IT codes because you're using number of units and height as a, in a kind combination when IT is just usually height so, yeah. and um, the, the whole point of this where I was starting was that when we talk about high density residential or high-rise residential it is that height of 10 is a 10-story building is higher than our existing heights except without addition well I mean we have 150 foot heights but only with meeting certain conditions so when we publicize this we say that we have this high-rise definition and very few units will be in that lowest category of, um, of fee because everything's mid-rise here in Shoreline. And so I'm concerned think, uh, in terms okay. of how the code, not, not the policy, but the, how the code is written. And so I will stop there and thank you, Mayor, for indulging me. Don't thank me. <laughs> If you would you like to respond? Uh, yeah, we yeah. can. Yeah. We can certainly just yeah. dive in to make sure that the code is reflective of the definition that we're applying. Um, but overall, what is happening is the ITE codes are indeed guiding the rate. It's the per unit that is just. The, it's not the number of units. It is that floor definition that ITE has. Um, but the they, the fee assessed is on a per unit basis, and so it's just if there's a higher number of um, a particular type of unit, you're paying more, but less if it's a higher density category. That's as simple as it is. Um, yeah, but uh, I'll, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, a quick question before we go to the council members. There's a document up on the screen that I'm not seeing either the staff report, the ordinance, or the presentation. Where is that document found? Huh. Uh, well, I, this was probably from the previous staff report, I believe. Um, from the 918 staff report, so I apologize for that. Um, so, 
Sorry. So I'm confused about what we're looking at here and why it's up. Is this something that we have already enacted or this is part of the package you're asking us to enact now? This is a summary of the TIF rates current and the TIF rates proposed. Uh, the multifamily in this case are collapsed into one and given a range. Okay. Where, where is the core, the substance of this information found in the ordinance? Are we adopting this as a table? No, no, uh, no, we're not adopting this as a table. Yeah, go ahead. I believe this is in the rate study, which is appendix B or C of this, of the staff report. All right. And this, these numbers would be applied by staff based upon the methodology that's outlined in the ordinance. And so this is basically an estimate of what it would be. Correct. Okay. All right. Th thank you. I, I understand now. Other questions or comments from council? Sorry, Councilmember Povey. Thank you, Mayor. Um, first of all, I'm not a fan of reducing anything to anybody. Um, as a city, I, I think um, every step we take, uh, we have to look at it, CBA, cost-benefit analysis. So if we are uh, I've gone through, it's a proposal, I like it, but I'm not convinced as to why we should reduce anything for anybody. As Councilmember Ramsdale pointed out, the MFT program has not panned out the way possibly it was intended. You know, the amount is high and uh, I'm not feeling it, if I, I may use that word. And so I'm just curious, why are we reducing for developers to come in and build? I just need, single statement, for example, because of this or because of that. Yeah. Um, so there's two elements that one is it is reflective of the trip generation difference between what, um, you know, so multifamily has lower trip generation impacts. And so it has less impact on the transportation system. We're trying to reflect that. But additionally, um, both the exemption for nonprofit uh, development and the reductions in the high activity areas do incentivize a growth pattern that aligns with the comprehensive plan and advances development in the areas we want it to advance. So that brings me back to the person trips versus the vehicle trips, which I think uh, you explained earlier. Still, I'm not convinced because I'm wondering, okay, trips, great, but this is where we are looking at reality on the ground. I'm not sure if that was taken into consideration. Trips, fantastic. It's a contributing factor or variable for this to be considered. But we are looking at how are people being able to pay what they are paying now. And for some reason, um, I'm not convinced. I don't support reducing anything to any developer. That's my opinion, by the way. So thank the you. One thing I could add is that this can serve as an economic development tool. We have very limited tools in the toolbox. This is one way to incentivize a certain development pattern that you want to see come to your community. That's one way of looking at it. I think that's great. I, but I'm also looking at the way you, you lay your bed is how you sleep on it. We've already laid the bed and uh, the way it's being slept on is not appealing. We're looking at, okay, we did this for these developments to come in, MFT, 12 years, and we even have an extension of another 12 years. And we are now seeing the benefit. So why do we want to do more? Okay. You want to if I may, weigh in? I just, I just have so much history with the MFTE program, so I feel like it might help to chime in to say that 
Um, Councilman Ramsdell said that earlier that um, uh, MFTE affordable units or that the affordability level set at 80% of AMI is what market rate is in Shoreline. That is only true for existing product. So, you know, multifamily built in the 60s or something like that, right? So if you're talking about a new development, um, the 80% AMI is well below the market rate of new construction units. So what, what our program does is it sort of gets product into the market at the price of buildings built 40 years, 50, 60, 70 years ago in some cases. So it is our, it is the biggest tool we've ever had for affordable housing. We've produced more affordable housing units in the city through the MFTE program than any other tool, but we do have a number of incentives like the TIF exemption for the nonprofit developers at 60% AMI um, and the parking exemptions, the permit fee reduction. So there's a lot of these fully affordable, the whole building is affordable at 50 or 60% AMI. Those are not MFTE and there's only one or two, you know, projects going on at any given time. Whereas the MFTE program is every single multifamily building in the city. So of the 11,000 units in our pipeline, 20% of those units are below market as a result of the MFTE program. So I just wanted to throw that out there. And again, it's just something that the city has decided as um, the city manager expressed as a way to incentivize the things that we'd like to see. Um, it is very limited. The MFTE program cannot uh, really generate affordability at levels below 80% AMI. Again, because the incentive is then not bigger than the loss, right? So the incentive has to be more attractive than just business as usual or going without it. Um, so those are just some factors, I guess, to bring into the conversation. All right, thank you. You're, you're done. All right, Councilmember McConnell. Um, Councilmember Povey, bring up a good point that I'm going to maybe attack it from a different uh, direction. If it's if if we're at TIF now and you're suggesting a reduction, I was seeing. I mean, you gave us a chart of what's been developed 2019, 2021, 20, and then what's also still in the pipeline, which is, you know couple of years out. I don't see a big dip uh, after the pandemic. So it looks like I'm personally not sure we need to incentivize anymore. And I am listening to the comments that we all got from the community who's saying, why are we doing this? We may want to use that TIF money. And why would we want less if we can continue to build still with the same amount that we're that we're getting right now so that's kind of a public question because I was okay until some of those comments from the public came out and I was you know we have to advocate for a bigger picture than um, as supportive as I've been of staff uh, recommendation it really got me to think is it necessary and if it's not maybe 10% reduction instead of 15 or half of that or something where we can give some incentive because the rate, the interest rates and stuff are holding things down or still, it's not even down, nothing's happening, right? So, so the stuff that's happening in the next few years is already in the pipeline. Right now it's probably fairly stagnant. Uh, so 
I guess I need to be convinced why we should go to 15% if keeping it where it is doesn't seem to have hurt us. The other thing you talked about with the um, affordable housing, it's not working to the level that this council wants. I don't know, because this is not what I do in my day job, I don't know what we can do. Give us some tools so we can get these nonprofits, you know, because I'll be, I think some of us will be all over that, but the, the thing, the tools that we have are just little, little baby steps, right? Um, I have other questions, but I want you to say something now, so before you lose it, is that okay? Well, I'm going to constrain yeah. this because I don't want us arguing policy back and forth between staff and council. Yeah. So if there are facts, yeah, facts. in response to sure. council, to the extent those are policy arguments, we'll do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my only comment would be kind of taking off on um, City Manager um, Ellington's comments about tools in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. um, I don't believe that uh, anyone intends TIF to solve our affordable housing um, oh, challenges yeah. that we have in the city. And I do believe that's something that the council uh, and the staff will be bringing back and looking at more tools that we want to bring to the council to choose from to increase all types of housing in Shoreline, which will help us increase the affordable housing in Shoreline, whether that be land trusts, whether that be um, uh, other incentives that we would have, but looking at all of the tools in a cohesive way um, I think will be the most effective, and that is something that we do plan to bring back. I hope that was helpful. Yeah, thank you. You have other questions? Yeah. Um, so in general, there's so much here in this, in your recommendations that I'm very glad that we're going come to come back to it November 6th, and I really don't want it to be just on consent. Uh, I personally think I've got to reread some of the stuff because I obviously made some assumptions in error. This is too big to make mistakes. And, uh, and usually I, you know, understand staff has got a lot more experience than I do. But, you know, the public is saying, why are we doing this? Not a bad question to, for us to listen to. So um, I have other things, but I think. Well, now's your chance. Yeah. Ask your questions, please. Well, okay. But I, I will move on because uh, it may be more policy than not. So. Oh, okay. But if you have questions of staff, this is the opportunity. Yeah. Right. Do you? No, I. Okay. Is there other questions from Councilmember Mork? Um, Mr. Aker, you have clearly done a lot of thinking with your team, and I'd like to say thank you for what you all have done. Um, I'm looking at it from a slightly different angle. Uh, we have 19 projects we're trying to fund with this TIF. Uh, is the reductions that are, we are doing impacting that total value? Uh, a lot of what is proposed as in terms of the rates that are decreasing um, for multifamily reflect a lot of what the city is doing um, in when we do our transportation impact analysis. So we are already doing a lot of um, this. So it's not a drastic difference from what um, revenue generation there, there might be, um, or at least the rate difference. Um, it to the reduction in particular districts, uh, I, I don't think it creates a situation where, you know, it, it's going to be troublesome to advance on our trans system, transportation system obligations. I'll note that there is no commitment to construct 
having these 19 projects does not mean we will fund all of these projects. And the, the, um, the fact that you know, we, we have a broader set is primarily so that we have the flexibility in utilizing funds for different project types. So let me tell you what I think you said. <laughs> I, I think you said that uh, you understand that all parties understand that we have transportation projects we want to do and that all parties understand that we want to be able to afford to do them using the TIF funds in the same kind of proportion that we have been doing all along. And what I hear you saying is that the reductions that are being suggested are not going to impact that overall math. Is that fair? I'll, maybe I'll let Trish is standing up to come on in here, so we'll just bring the whole team in. <laughs> I, I think in, until Trish gets settled in, I, I can respond to to say that, you know. Hold on a minute. I would if staff would stay focused if the most knowledgeable person can answer rather than having everybody. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Answer this particular question. Ms. I'll still take it. Thank you. Yeah. So certainly reductions will reduce the TIF impact fees that we collect. Um, those are reductions, so they are funds that we will not collect. The rate study with those 19 projects uh, will not fully fund all of those projects by collecting TIF just based on the complicated math and requirements uh, on what is eligible as far as growth, paying for growth, not paying for existing deficiencies. So yes, if we have reductions, we are potentially reducing our revenue, which does reduce the revenue we collect that could go towards transportation projects. But we're comfortable and confident. So we're, we're really balancing here is, uh, if I wear my just public works hat, and I need money to build projects, because yes, we have aggressive projects we want to build. If I just wear my public works hat, I don't want any reductions. But we're also responding to what we've heard from council as far as trying to encourage growth in the proper places, such as around the light, air, light rail stations, um, and how to encourage affordable housing or reduced housing costs, how to encourage business so we're not as reliant on um, just residential income. Those are factors that we've taken based upon how we've understood council's policies and priorities is what has framed and shaped this. It is certainly council's decision to tell us that we are off track or we have you would like to go a different direction, whether that's eliminating reductions or otherwise. You know, we have done our best to try and understand what is your priorities, but this is what we're asking for you to give us direction of what you do want us to do with this, uh, this ordinance. Uh, thank you, Ms. Chunky. That's very clear. And perhaps I can just ask a, another clarifying question. The thing I don't understand is the rate may go down, but the number of units may be more. So I wasn't sure if the actual amount collected is basically the same. And that's what I was trying to understand better. You're going to have to answer. Either you or Kendra Dodinsky have to answer that one. Kendra Breland. I, I can probably tackle that one. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but um, so 
in terms of the housing, it, it's going to be effectively the same as what we're doing today uh, in, in multifamily, I should say. So what what largely this is this rate study and new proposal is doing is it's squaring up our existing practices through the TIA process to simplify things for developers to some degree. Um, but it's it's squaring up um, what is a reality in the industry. So our old TIF rates were based on 2015 or, or thereabouts numbers. Things have come a long way. Lots of studies have been completed, even regional studies. And now what we're doing is squaring up the actual trip generation rates for various land uses and in particular the types of trips that are being taken in these areas and trying to assess a value of those, right? And so I would, I, I want to be very clear that the high activity reduction, high activity area reduction is really related more to the types of trips we're anticipating in those areas being less impactful than they would otherwise be in the outskirts of our city. So if you don't incentivize development in those high activity areas where there is robust transit, it doesn't incentivize growth there. It, it might then kind of distribute it, especially in, in light of the middle housing bill that's coming, it might incentivize that kind of growth to occur kind of more distributed, which has a much more dramatic effect on our transportation system from a, a vehicle perspective. So those those trips on the outskirts are much more impactful to our system as a whole. And so that is what the 15% rate reduction is doing. And in terms of housing, we're already recognizing that because the ITE already recognizes that through the, the TIA process that we work through with multifamily developers. Now we are applying a regional reduction um, that has been studied by PSRC to a broader swath of land uses, which we think is appropriate based on the studies that have been conducted around here, which Kendra Braylon could talk to more if, if of interest. But ITE has not caught up with the rest of the land uses yet. They have kind of focused in on a certain uh, number of land uses and have applied a similar concept to high activity uh, areas to their uses, which is proximity to transit. And so we are already doing this. There isn't a significant difference in the way that it's being applied with this kind of squaring up that we're doing of our TIF proposal here. Thank you. Do you have another question? Uh, no, sir. That was very clear. I really appreciate it, Mr. Dinsky. Deputy Mayor. I just want to say this has been a, an impressive array of staff members answering an impressive array of questions from my colleagues. Um, the last time you were here, we had a, a really good conversation. I feel like the staff, and then reiterated by your your comments just now, Ms. Junkie, you guys have been incredibly responsive to the feedback you've gotten already. I am very comfortable moving forward with the recommendations that staff has made. Thank you. Thank you. I have a couple of things. For starters, I agree with staff here, and I hope I was I hope I was aggressive enough because we were getting into policy arguments, and that's what I don't want to have happen. It just it, the meeting goes forever, and you have your opinions, you're entitled to them, but I want to make sure we get facts from staff, and then we have the arguments. But I agree with staff. Um, I, I was surprised, verging on astounded, at some of the comments I heard up here tonight. I mean, we have spent so many years trying to find ways to incentivize, incentivize affordable housing. We mandate it. One of the things I'm most proud of is our 20% mandatory affordability. We need more tools in the toolbox, not fewer. And the fact that some citizens have complained or some people think developers should pay the most, 
that to me, it, that, that is a giant step backwards in our thinking. So for me, so for starters, it works. I mean, we've got developments here that are far cheaper than they would be without MFTE because they're using MFTE. If they use MFTA, they are required to offer a certain number of affordable units. That program works, but it's not enough and we need more tools. So my question, first of several, is I'm not understanding staff's argument that because the TIF exemption is less attractive than MFTE, we should remove that tool from the toolbox. It seems to me that somebody may want only MFTE because they want the flexibility to increase rates, but there are others that some of us have been working really hard to lure in, like Volunteers of America or Habitat or somebody else who's gonna be fine with lifetime affordability, and they may want both MFTE and TIF, and they might not be willing to shoreline, they might go to Bothell if our rate structure is such that it's not cost effective for them to build here. So, go ahead. Uh, I would comment that, um, I think Nate mentioned this, but as it just has not seemed, because if we're talking about for-profit, so nonprofit already have this tool in the TIF, they would continue to have the tool in the TIF. Um, we just don't see it as being, um, there's nine areas of the MFTE, we have the mandatory affordable areas that also have that layer of MFTE, that there would be many other opportunities for this type of housing, honestly, outside of those areas by for-profit, um, in terms to pencil out over the lifetime of the product. So, um, in terms of the reduction in rates, uh, or induction in rent, so. Okay, Th thank you. I'm still not buying it, no offense. Sure. That's <laughs> Policy it, differences. This, um, this is actually just, hopefully this helps. It says we went round and round on this, um, and I'll just, maybe I can clarify. The amount of money that they save in the TIF is not as much money as the amount of money that it costs them to commit to permanent affordability. So this is, this because it's because the MFTE burns off after 12 years, and then they can go I, I, to I get, I get a different it. level. I, I get that. Thank okay. You. I didn't know if you got it. No, so I got you, it. You got it. <laughs> um, I, I was going to argue with you, which is what I'm trying not to do. Um, so for, for me, given that there are some policy questions here, what I suggest we do as a process is this is clearly not going to be consent. I ask that you come up with some options, teed up in advance, and I'm going to ask counsel if you have something specific to get it to staff by when? In, end of this coming week. Okay, so if you have a specific thing that you dislike or you would like to see different about the staff report, you can email it to Mr. Ellington and he'll then forward it to the team and then we'll have choices we can vote on. That makes it easier than shooting from the hip because when that happens, we end up arguing over word choice and, and that's how sausage gets made. Um, I heard already that I would like to see the, the TIF remain for for-profit affordable housing. Um, and Councilmember Ramsdell, senior housing, you were still interested in that? All right. I, we can do have the policy arguments next time. I join you in that, and that's because I think it's a social good and that we're taking a hit on road maintenance for the benefit of having senior housing in our city, and for me, I'm willing to subsidize that that way. Um, Councilmember Ramsdell's comments on making sure that single-family houses, which are affordable, and that's the habitat model or the land trust model, I don't know what that looks like, and, and I, but if staff can put some effort into that, I would love to see an option where that's addressed. It never, never even occurred to me before now, but you know, again, Habitat, I would like to see them build something, and if we tell them, by the way, you gotta pay $6,000 even though you're permanently affordable, that for me is not the right incentive. Um, I also 
don't understand, and if there's something I'm missing, why we're incentivizing hotels, office, and industrial? Is that just job growth? Yeah. So that is again uh, very limited, very few tools in the toolbox, uh, and so um, this is a reflection of the the council adopted uh, job growth target of 10,000 jobs. So this is something that comes from that discussion in the comp plan process that's ongoing now, um, and those variety of interests that we've heard from council. As a policy matter, I personally don't prioritize those uses, and those seem to be to be the most vehicle trip generating. I mean, particularly I mean, if, it's, if it's an office, someplace you go, right? And if you're working from home, you don't need an office. So I don't. I would ask that we have an option to vote those out, and then we can have the policy debate on, on whether they should be. Um, any other questions or comments from council? And I think we're going to have a. a Councilman. Yeah, thank you, Mayor. I'd like to see just uh, the numbers run on what a 80% or if, if we set the rate at 80% of what could be collected using, using the same, everything else the same. Thank you, Mayor. Other questions or comments? And, and I, I was throwing some stuff out there to save an email later, but we can, as this occurs to us, we, we should send emails if, if it comes up. Any other general, go ahead. That is what would be helpful, is okay. if we could make sure we get okay. from um, council what they would like to see. Again, we would be looking for these in mainly in amendment format. We right. can certainly try and prepare some. I'm just afraid that we would not capture all of these. Um, so the sooner we can get those, then we can frame those and put them in our staff report so they would be ready okay. for you to all review and discuss rather than trying to come up with the amendments at that action meeting. Okay. Thank you. Any, go ahead. Yeah. Um, those, um, that list of 19 or so, I trust that you have all hashed it out and I'm happy not to probably tinker with that. It's probably the bigger picture of um, all the light rail station cities, what, I mean, are they getting stuck and they have to do this sort of thing? I'd like to actually just be bluntly told those things that, that maybe not are in the, not in the report because, you know, I'm very open to knowing why this needs to be done. What, what, why oh, this needs reduction. to be done as far as the reduction, yeah. such as the business exemptions and the high, or just the high activity area yeah. reductions? Yeah, yeah, okay. the, the general 15%. 15% reduction, yeah. okay. Because it looks like we're really not losing ground on development of the, the, the larger zoning things that we've done for years. And I, so, you know, we're, we're always looking for money for transportation impact and uh, so for in the ballpark I'm not sure why we should talk about a big reduction but again you know I'm pretty open to facts so thank you very much and then one other item if I could just comment on what your first comment about the project list so the project list is what frames the rate study which is what sets the maximum rate so if you are not satisfied with the project list that means we need to rerun the rate study and so we would need to know that now um, versus if that is not something we could change uh, and keep it on an action item. That would require us then to go back and rerun the rate study for action, which is fine and understandable. I just want to make sure that you all understand how that ties in. So I think I did say that I'm fine with You're that, fine right? with it, yes. I did anyway. Thank you. Anything further from council? 
Oh, Councilmember Roberts. Sorry, one more question. I thought about this last time and it just was looking, it slipped and then yeah. the last time, last meeting. And um, so when we look at the high activity areas and sort of thinking about it, we, it covers largely, it take, um, our light rail station areas, it covers um, our Aurora broadly, but it, when we think about some of our high activity areas and where we're seeing growth and development, we're not, um, we're missing what the Ballinger commercial node, we're missing the Briarcrest commercial node, um, where we actually have seen development in both of those areas. Can you sort of explain why the, some of these areas um, along state highways um, are, were not considered for the high activity area zone? Can, I can speak to kind of how these were defined. Um, so first we started with the King County, King County Candidate Countywide Centers. I'm sorry, I've butchered that name, but you're familiar with the concept. Um, and then we, so we did use the land that was specifically within that. And then uh, we looked at, um, in addition to that, it needed to overlap with high frequency transit locations. So I think if I understand correctly, um, the area that you're referring to is potentially along 104, um, which didn't have as high frequent of uh, transit um, service that would help to kind of reduce um, kind of the transportation impacts. So right. that's, that's kind uh, of- And 104 is different than uh, the 522, 523 corner, where we will see frequent transit so I know this is just in the ordinance and we can amend that, so I'm not terribly worried about it, but I, I just wanted to get some thought about on here of why some of these areas were and were not excluded. And I think Thank that you. would then tie to the King County, Countywide Center and sticking to kind of some of those boundaries. So I think that's, that's the original criteria that that might not have met. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. Anything further from Council? No, thank you all very much, and Ms. Walters especially. I know we've kept you up late, so enjoy the rest of your trip, and uh, thank you. We will now recess into an executive session for a period of 20 minutes to discuss with legal counsel potential litigation. We are not expected to take final action following the executive session.
Are we on? All right, the executive session has concluded and this meeting of the Shoreline City Council is adjourned.